Just a quick reminder, this podcast may contain general advice, but it doesn't take into account your personal circumstances, needs, or objectives. The scenarios and stocks mentioned in this podcast are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any financial products. Read the relevant PDFs, assess whether that information is appropriate for you, and consider speaking to a financial advisor before making investment decisions. Past performance is no indicator of future performance. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Stocks Neat. And today we're talking about the topic of the spring in Australia, fall if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, which is uranium. I'm joined by portfolio manager on our international fund, Harvey Magotti. How are you, Harvey? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, Harvey. And yourself? Not too bad. Thanks. Not too bad. Not easy out there on markets at the moment? No, it's been a you know tricky few months, obviously. I read an interesting stat the other day. Yeah. It's only 27% of stocks have outperformed the S&P 500 this year. This is US stocks. You know, As you can imagine, that number is usually around 50 you know, half the stocks tend to outperform the index, half better half underperform, and then you get that average, and that's the index. And this is the lowest number in over 30 years. So, uh, you know, unless you've kind of been sitting there in the fangs and NVIDIA, <laughs> you've kind of been left behind just because of the weighting of some of those, you know, mega cap names that that swing the market. Yeah, it's I'll been be- been interesting, and we're both yeah, there was a, a period of, we talked a lot about small caps last time we had you on the podcast, actually, and there's been a decent period of performance in the first half of the year, but just the last couple of months, again, a bit of a reversion yeah, to what yeah. we've seen a lot of. Still, the still sitting years. there at a big historical discount relative, to, sorry, a big discount relative to history versus the, the larger cap names. So at some point that reverses, let's see when. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for coming on today. I... Ran Sydney Marathon on Sunday, feeling a bit sore and sorry for myself. It was a terribly hot day out there. It was actually the hottest marathon I've ever run in my life. My little hospital stint that we talked about last podcast set me back on the training program. So it was nice to get to the start, but a really hot day out there. We're not, well, we're not drinking whiskey again today. So this (laughs) has become the worst whiskey tasting podcast that's ever been held. Have you had anything to drink recently for the alcoholics out there that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, so for our listeners who remember JT, who used to work at Forager, he- Jeffrey Say. Jeffrey Say, uh, JT, he got married recently, so I was up in the Hunter. I stopped by a nice little winery on the way back called Peterson's, and I think they have you know just amazing, amazing reds. I love their cabs. You know, there's, there's some good entry-level wines for, let's say, 32 Aussie dollars that you can pick up there, and some reserve and other higher, you know, quality ones uh, as well if for people that are so inclined, but highly recommended in order from them online. I just actually <laughs> ordered a few more myself. So yeah, th- those those are fabulous. If anyone sees one in a store, I'd, I'd recommend picking one up. Well, that'll hopefully sometime soon we're a little bit less busy and can actually enjoy a drink while we record this podcast as well. One quick recommendation from me, it's not on the whiskey front either, but my wife was out to dinner with her work recently and the person she was out to dinner with recommended she she loves a Chardonnay and a Californian Chardonnay called La Crema, which uh, oh, yeah, I know will be at home yeah. and we bought a couple of bottles of that. That's a really, really, really nice Chardonnay if you're into that. Again, it's not cheap, but it's not stupidly expensive either, 35 or 40 bucks a bottle, something like that. Hmm. Look, talking of hot on marathon day, I haven't seen uranium in the headlines this much for many a year. 
prices up more than 30% in 2023. So that's the reason Harvey Yellowcake Magotti is on the podcast today to explain what's going on. For background, we have had an investment in our international fund in physical uranium for the past two years, and you've been banging the drum on this one for quite some time. So tell us what's going on. Yeah, back in 2021, we saw a very interesting setup here for numerous reasons. It's a space that I first got exposure to back in 2007, 2008, when I was working metals and mining M&A in Morgan Stanley. So I won't name any names, but you can imagine that uh, uranium back then was pretty hot and there was I mean, lots of M&A going up in the space and people buying mines and whatnot. Yeah, since then, it's it's almost done a 180, I guess, you know, from going to, from a period where you were investing a lot in high prices, you went through a period where there's been no new mine supply and prices, you know, at all rock bottoms and it's been a tough few years, but everything seems to be changing at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a big move in the uranium price. And obviously, whenever something like this happens, and I see with the, the likes of Wall Street Journal, you know, front page articles about uranium price and nuclear energy and so forth, I do start to get a bit nervous. There are more and more investors talking about it and writing about it. That always makes one question, you know, are, you're obviously not alone in the room thinking the same way, but we really do like the story here. Even now, even post the move, there's a nice kind of setup here. Yeah. A little bit like the the gold bugs that are out in force on Twitter every time the gold price is up 10 or 15%, telling us how many swimming pools of gold there are in the world. It's a pretty vociferous crowd of people that are positive about uranium. And there's a couple of different I guess, narratives going on here. And, and one really big one is the role that uranium could play in the energy piece as we transition to a less carbon intensive source of electricity. There are lots and lots of problems that are widely discussed with the intermittent nature of renewable energy. Mm. And uranium is seen as an answer to that. What are your thoughts on that argument and how important is it here to the case for uranium itself? Yeah, I mean, for me, and I've kind of I've been shouting this from the rooftops for the past ten years, but this clearly to me is the solution to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and you know, and a cleaner, safer form of energy. It always has been. I think you know I don't want to get into politics too much, but the po <laughs> politics and the political will to do it was moving in the other direction. Actually, people were talking about shutting down reactors, and uh, you know, Fukushima obviously didn't help sentiment. It is now the people, you know, the, the, the politicians are doing a bit of a 180. So both Europe and US last year started classifying nuclear energy as a green, clean, you know, quote unquote, energy source. So they are, I think the politicians are, you know, realizing that this is such a crucial piece of the puzzle to get to some sort of carbon neutrality or reduce emissions over the next couple of decades. So that's great to see because <laughs> like in particularly in parts of Europe, you, you, they were almost fighting against it for many, many years. Uh, so that's been a positive change. And just as an aside for people, so one gummy bear sized uranium pellet produces the equivalent amount of energy as burning one ton of coal or uh, consuming three barrel, barrels of oil, you know? And obviously we know that uh, gas emissions from this are extremely low and more importantly, it's super reliable. So, you know, all these problems that you've seen across Europe, like, like Germany, where there's not enough wind blowing that day and all of a sudden, oops, I need to burn a bunch of coal or import some power from France and whatever else, who by the way, still has a lot of nuclear. It's very highly reliable energy source. So yeah, for those who remember their high school physics, you know, we, we were all taught that formula, Einstein's formula of E equals MC squared, mm. but 
you just mentioning that gummy bear just made me think about the consequences of it. You know, C in that formula is the speed of light. Yeah. And the formula said energy is equivalent to the mass of an object. It has the, the energy equivalent of mass times the speed of light squared, mm -hmm. which is an enormous huge number. But obviously getting the energy out of mass is not a straightforward thing, but it is an amazing concept in terms of the world's energy problems that I think if you found it today and someone came out and said, we've got this new energy source that yeah. can produce this much energy from this much material, we'd be dancing in the streets and talking about how No, that, that's right. You know, is. forget about uh, putting wind turbines up. That, uh, everyone be uh, doing that to the extent they could. Uh, but but uh, look, I, I think particularly in this political world that we live in at the moment, if you are basing your investment decisions around rationale and logic, <laughs> you'd be waiting a very long time for some of your investments to come good. It doesn't always work like that. And I feel like this is one of those things that it's easy to talk about how transformational it could be. I think politically it is still very, very difficult. I think you're right. It's getting less difficult. You're seeing more and more people talking about it as a potential solution. I think you're seeing polls show that society is getting more accepting about it mm -hmm. as a potential solution. I would still say this could be a very, very long time before it's becoming a genuine part in the West that people are willing to invest no, in. No, no, 100%. And, and this, this isn't really a, a story about the West. This is actually a story about emerging markets and what's happening there. So, you know, for almost 20 years, we've had no new nuclear reactors built anywhere. There have been a net reactors. There have been some taken offline, a couple built, but the net's been zero. And look at the next few years. You have 40 set to be completed between 2024 and 2027. This is relative to just over 400 that are currently operating today globally. So it's a huge number. You're adding more than 10% to, to the amount of reactors out there. And this is largely driven by India and China, where nuclear power has become a core to the government's emissions reduction and pollution control strategies. So huge drive there for them. And looking further out, you know, past 2027, you've got an additional 19 reactors being built and 425 new reactors planned or proposed across 31 countries. So that's, you know, doubling the amount of reactors that we currently have in operation today. And that is mostly in the developing world and China as well. Middle income might be a better description of some of those countries now, but is that mostly there? Or I know that Hinkley point in the UK, there's, I think, a couple of new ones coming on in France. Yeah, no, it's, there's definitely some in the West, but yes, I mean, it's China and India are driving over the near term, the large majority of these. And, you know, we already have a problem and that is that we're not producing uh, the same amount as we're consuming. You know, people have been, utilities and Others have been drawing down on inventories and, you know, obviously nuclear disarmament programs have helped over the past one or two decades, but you can only draw down on so much inventory and you need that production to step up. And we have, we're in a significant shortfall, especially as these new reactors come online, that's set to, to kind of get worse. Now we're in a world where the sector has been so hated and capital starved for so many years. You combine that with the fact that, you know, just generally, especially in the West, getting an approval to uh, open a new mine is more and more tough. You know, it's getting tougher and tougher by the year, environmental regulations, and no one wants something in their backyard, especially if you're going to say you're going to mine uranium. But, you know, that is not to say that it's not an abundant material. It is. It's actually very abundant. Getting it out of the ground safely and at a reasonable price is the more challenging part of the equation.
Stay tuned, we'll be back in just a sec. Are you a long-term investor with a passion for unloved bargains? So are we. Forager Funds is a contemporary value fund manager with a proven track record for finding opportunities in unlikely places. Through our Australian and international shares funds, investors have access to small and mid-sized investments not accessible to many fund managers in businesses that many investors likely haven't heard of. We have serious skin in the game too, meaning we invest right alongside our investors. For more information about our investments, visit foragerfunds.com. And if you like what you're hearing and what we're drinking, please like, subscribe, and pass it on. Thanks for tuning in. Now, back to the chat. Just um, back on the on the consumption side of things, I mean, and this doesn't surprise me, that this market, from my understanding, and a little bit of, I guess, interesting side story here, when we started talking about this podcast and just writing our mostly recent monthly report, I remembered that we'd written up something. I was thinking back to I've heard this whole story before. It's been doing the rounds for quite some time. And we had actually written up an idea and I went and found the note on our on our file system mm. here on an Aussie company called Silex Systems, which was trading at a discount to net cash back in 2014. And we'd made the case then for for it to grow. But back then it was really a long-term contracted market. There wasn't the spot market for uranium didn't really exist. And I think some of your numbers- It's still small. It's still like 10 to 20%, depending on the year, sometimes less. But the generators have gone from having five years of inventory to having one. Why have they let that happen? Like, Why have they become as exposed or soon to be exposed to the spot market? It's a good question. I guess, you know, for 13 years, you haven't had a problem getting supply. You know, prices were low and it's a small portion of their overall expense. So it doesn't sound like it's a focus. I mean, I'll give you a little anecdotal point that I heard from someone who attended the Energy Association conference, which was, I believe, last weekend. He said that he felt that a lot of these utilities and buyers just had a significant amount of complacency. I mean, I kind of find that hard to believe. They live and breathe this and and it's it sounds weird, but maybe that's just the case, you know. And it's a small portion of your overall expense, and it's been so cheap for so long that you kind of haven't bothered. Yeah, and you've been on the wrong side, I guess. The spot price has been lower than what you've been paying for a very long yeah, period of time. That's and people right. are probably sitting there thinking, "I wouldn't mind a bit more spot exposure than what I've got at the moment." Sorry, just back on the supply side of things. Then, yeah, you know, there's an Aussie company called Boss. Energy, I think, that's yep. just restarting a uranium mine in South Australia that was in production back in the early part of the 2010s. Mm-hmm. I think there's another mine in Canada somewhere that's restarting as well. I mean, how much mothball production is there that can come back online pretty quickly before you start worrying about developing new mines? Yeah, well, I mean, at a uranium price of you know 60 to 70 per pound, it's no longer uneconomical for for some of these miners to operate. So you could get a, a chunk of that and it does bridge the gap a bit, but you still have a shortfall when it comes to the amount we're consuming. And that is today. Obviously that consumption is set to go up quite a lot over the next couple of years as these new reactors come online. Yeah. And have you seen an estimate anywhere of what, if someone was thinking about an undeveloped mine at the moment, what sort of price is the price that's going to make you go, this makes sense for me to, to deploy a whole heap of capital and take on a whole heap of risk in this market. Well, I mean, 
when you think about existing mines coming back online where you've already spent a lot of the capex, that number is generally between 50 and 75, just depends where you are. Uh, that's dollars per pound. I mean, you'd imagine that you'd need something closer to 100 for you to actually go out and spend the money on on a new mine, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so absolutely. To, yeah. And I, I guess boss restarting now that the uranium price is above 60, I think they're talking about $25 a pound all-in sustaining cost, which from my experience in the mining space probably means it's at least $10 more than yeah, that yeah, yeah. in terms of the real cost. And yeah, you can see this production starting to come online, which suggests this is the marginal price that works for an established asset. It's got to be higher than this for someone to go out and risk a whole heap of capital in yeah, a new one. So. And I, I guess the, the thesis here, and I, I think the the upside hope for us that is is that in the interim the spot price could be substantially higher than what that incentive price is just because there's not enough of it definitely and uh, you know the, something interesting that's happened this is a recent phenomenon over the last two years but you know we have sprott physical uranium trust you've got yellow cake plc anu energy these are investment trusts that are that have launched over the last couple of, of years that are buying physical uranium. So just, just to give you a data point, Sprott has, over the last two years, Sprott's purchased 62 million pounds of uranium. And by contrast, total annual global demand is approximately 175 million. So significant, significant pressure on, on the spot price from that to some extent. And obviously, you know, that can work both ways. And if people start selling these or trying to redeeming then they're starting to sell that on the market and it cuts both ways but it's been it's another new source of demand that was not there two or three years ago yeah that's actually the investment that we've made in our international shares fund a couple of years ago was in the sprott physical uranium yep. trust obviously if you think the uranium price is going up there are quite a number of listed options for people and that Silex that I talked about, that Australian listed company, the share price has gone from 50 or 60 cents to $3 as yeah. the uranium prices has run up. Why own physical uranium versus a uranium miner versus, I mean, Silex is not even a uranium miner. It has third derivative exposure yeah. to the processing yeah. of uranium. Very, very interesting business, by the way. That's a CSIRO technology for converting yellow cake into actual usable uranium using lasers rather than centrifugal yeah. processes. And that technology is a potential solution to some very big problems out there, particularly in the West, because a lot of this is getting done in Russia at the moment. And they they basically just get a share of the profits that come from doing that into the future. So it's a very, very interesting piece of technology and an interesting business, but at the moment not generating any revenue. So gone around in circles a bit there, but back to my question, why physical uranium versus the other things that are exposed to it here? Yeah, look, we had this view on the supply and demand dynamics on uranium when this price was just under $30 a couple of years back. And this felt like a good way to express that view. You know, we could, it's a liquid asset. We could invest in decent size, you know, and there, whenever it comes to these small junior miners, especially ones that aren't actually producing anything, which is one of the ways to invest here, obviously, there's Kazatom Prom and Kamiko that do produce, but we're not getting into all the issues that you get <laughs> by buying an asset in Kazakhstan. And Kamiko has, it's not just a pure play uranium producer either. So 
you look at some of these smaller names and companies and what you will find, and we've seen this every single cycle and across commodities, some will do well and some <laughs> will have cash cost overruns, mine problems, all sorts of issues, and you'll lose money on those investments even though the underlying commodity price goes up. So in this instance, we just really wanted to to keep it simple. And that's what we did with Sprout, and Sprout is as simple as it gets, I would say, when it comes to uranium price. We actually, many years ago, I, I didn't own the stock personally, but uh, at Intelligent Investor, we had recommended a stock called Croesus Mining. This is back pre-GFC times mm. on the basis that the gold price was going to go up and that this company would make a lot of money. Mm. The gold price promptly doubled and Croesus went bust <laughs> from a hedge book yeah. where it there had production go. troubles. It didn't produce enough gold to meet its hedge book. It had to go and buy gold on the spot market at twice the price that it was selling for oh and God. thing went into bankruptcy. So someone said to me, read our report in the newsletter and said, so you think this is the best way of going about it? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there are people that have expertise in looking at mining stocks that might be able to work out ways oh, of making more money than just the simple way that we're going about it. I think it's the best way for us and our skill set at the moment. We have had a pretty good look at some other options as well, and I certainly wouldn't rule out other options here, but it's a really nice, simple way that if we're right, we're going to make money. And you know, if the price were to go back to 50 or $40 where you've got a lot of these marginal players yes, are not that's making right. money anymore. You haven't lost too much by actually owning the physical commodity exactly. itself. Exactly. 100%. And I you know, I actually think if you like gold as a f inflation hedge, it's, it's a lot simpler just to own gold than it is to own a gold miner. And the correlation over longer periods of time has actually not been mm. that strong. It's typically quite strong over the short yeah. term. but at, at least in gold, I'd say you have some really top tier assets out there in the world, Barrick, et cetera, right? Uh, you don't necessarily have that in the uranium space. They're just, they aren't there, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's too small and lo lots of companies went bust and so forth. So you don't even have that option to some extent. You know, you're going for the juniors, the explorers. Uh, it's it's an option. It's, it can make you a lot of money and it can also lose you a bunch of money. So Yeah. And I even think there in gold, it's the thing that you're trying to protect yourself against is also a problem for the miners. So if you do get lots of inflation, you tend to have inflation in your cost bases, well as the gold price going well, up. Definitely, yeah. You don't necessarily uh, get the benefit that you thought you were going to get. So that's been a very uh, interesting little exploration of a small part of our portfolio. Harvey, what's coming up for you over the next couple of months with the other 97.5% of, uh, of our portfolio? <laughs> we're actually over 3% in Sprout. So. Okay, take that back, 96 point something percent. <laughs> Yeah, so it's an interesting period. We're obviously, it's coming towards the end of the quarter, so generally quiet, you know, at least especially in, in the US, but number of investor days coming up over the next few weeks, and we've been using this time to look at some new ideas, uh, which we've been discussing, as you know, over the past few weeks. So some of them will make it in the portfolio. Uh, in November, we have, a tr obviously, you know, we have a trip to Chicago. We're seeing a number of companies over a period of one week. That should be really good. Some great meetings lined up there. And I think some underground diligence as well in terms of stores and seeing how uh, how demand's holding up for various end markets that we've, we're exposed to through our investments. So, Yeah, quite a few stocks already in the portfolio that we're able to meet with over there, which will be yep. great to have some management catch-ups and then pretty long list over the week of interesting prospective companies as well. It's the flip side of what you mentioned earlier around 
the bifurcated nature of this market mm. that we're in is that there is actually still, uh, we've got a pretty long list of potential new ideas at yep. the moment that we're juggling priorities and thinking about where we want to spend our time. But there's lots of things trading near their lows and multi-year mul- mm. lows in terms of multiples of earnings and things. So it's, it's good to have a nice quiet period. It's going to be great to meet with a bunch of those companies as well and yeah, punch out some new oh, research definitely. and get yeah. some new stocks into the portfolio. No, it's going to, it's going to be a good trip. I'm excited. So, Looking forward to it as well. You're flying Qantas? Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor old Qantas. Uh, here we it's are, a pylon, isn't it? It's yeah, a pylon. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. It's been another episode of Stocks Neat. Don't forget, if you're not already signed up, to register your email address if you want to get a copy of those monthly reports and hear more of our thoughts on topics like the one we've been discussing today, the case for uranium. Just go to our website, foragerfunds.com, and put your email address in there. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.